And our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 to 43. This is a reading of God's word. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came, and came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. The Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're new to our church or just visiting, uh, you are stepping into a series we've been in for the past few weeks called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And the premise of this entire series is that a person cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And each week we've been looking at a different principle of emotional health. If you remember, week one we talked about looking beneath the surface. Week two we looked at breaking the power of the past. Week three was about living in brokenness and vulnerability. And then last week we looked at receiving the gift of limits. Seeing our limitations not as hurdles to be overcome, but as gifts to be embraced that move us toward God and His will for our lives. Well, today uh, we're unpacking maybe the heaviest of all the topics so far. Um, it's a topic that I think all of us have had to reckon with in some way, shape, or form, especially in 2020, and that's embracing grief and loss. And I wish this weren't true, but 
Whether we like it or not, there is no pathway toward emotional health that doesn't go through grief and loss. You can try to run from it, you can try to avoid it, but in the end, all of us have to deal with it. And I would say that especially here in the West, we're really bad at grieving. And I think it's because grieving forces us to sit in discomfort and uncertainty. It's inefficient. You see, most of us, we see a problem and we immediately want to fix it. We want to rationalize it. We want to explain it. We're all about forward progress. But the thing about grief is that it often feels like you're not moving at all. With grief, there's nothing to achieve. There's no goal to reach. It just is. It's messy. It takes time. It takes effort. And because we don't like to sit in that tension, more often than not, we end up minimizing our pain, we end up burying it or suppressing it, only to have that pain surface later on in life. Now typically when we think about grief and loss, our minds tend to gravitate toward those extreme life-altering tragedies. A death of a loved one, terminal illness, infertility, sexual abuse, a miscarriage. And for those of us who haven't experienced anything like this, it's easy for us to just disregard a sermon on grief. But when you really think about it, every single one of us has lost something at some point in our lives. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a relationship you thought had potential, a friendship that you thought was forever. For married couples, maybe it's the loss of independence. For all you first-time parents, the loss of date nights and lazy Saturdays and pretty much every freedom you once took for granted. You know, for me these days, uh, as much as I joke about it, it's the loss of my youth. And in a city like LA where youth is glorified, where people literally spend millions of dollars trying to hold on to their youth, seeing yourself age can be pretty scary. You know, I, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm starting to get whites. Uh, my neck and my back hurt every morning for no reason. You know, last week I, I literally spent an hour trying to figure out reels on Instagram and I still don't get it. And I realized I'm that guy now. I'm that old guy trying to understand what all the young kids are doing. And as insignificant as some of these losses feel in the grand scheme of things, I would argue that it's the small losses, the ones we forget to grieve, that we end up paying for in the long run. Because unless we make grieving small losses a regular part of our lives, we will not be prepared to grieve the catastrophic losses when they come. And they will come. And we know this because we're living in a post-Eden world. You know, if you remember our series in the book of Genesis, we talked about how in the beginning, God spoke the entire cosmos into existence and thoughtfully crafted every living, moving, breathing thing for a specific purpose. But when sin entered the picture, it shifted everything out of its proper place. Things were no longer as they were meant to be. What should have been a world marked by love, peace, and beauty soon became marred by death, disease, and disappointment. And this is the world all of us were born into. A world where loss is not the exception, but the norm. And unless we understand this, unless we understand that loss is inevitable, we will spend our entire lives trying to avoid it rather than embrace it. You know, at the beginning of quarantine, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review that was making its rounds on social media. And the article was titled, The Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. 
And in it, David Kessler, who is one of the world's foremost experts on grief, was interviewed about what it was that everyone was collectively feeling in those first few weeks of quarantine. And he says, it's grief. A grief that was mourning the loss of a world forever changed. A grief over the fact that the things that used to be normal weren't normal anymore and maybe would never be normal. And that article was published on March 23rd of this year. And if you didn't believe David Kessler then, I'm sure you believe him now. Because since then, over 100,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. alone some of whom are loved ones of those in our community. Since then, we've been confronted with the ongoing brutalization of black bodies in our society. We've watched businesses and entire cities burn to the ground. We've seen unemployment rise to Great Depression levels, domestic violence cases at an all-time high, poor families without access to technology having to figure out how to do virtual education for their kids. You can't possibly live in 2020 and still believe that grief is avoidable. And if you're anything like me, I suspect that many of you tuning in today just have this nagging feeling you can't seem to shake. Some days it feels like loneliness, some days like restlessness, other days outright helplessness. Well, might I suggest that what you may be experiencing at this very moment is none other than grief. That deep ache in your gut that tells you this isn't the way it's supposed to be was supposed to be different. This isn't the way my kids were supposed to grow up in front of a computer screen. It was supposed to be different. This isn't the way my wedding was supposed to be. All my friends and family were supposed to be there. There was supposed to be hugging and dancing and festivities. It was supposed to be different. This isn't what my last year of college was supposed to be. I was supposed to walk with all my classmates. It was supposed to be my last hurrah before entering the real world. It was supposed to be different. This isn't how I was supposed to say goodbye to my dad, from a distance, through a window because they wouldn't let me in the hospital room. It was supposed to be different. Whatever it is that you've lost, whether big or small, my question for you today is, have you grieved it? Have you actually sat in that uncomfortable space between what is and what could have been? Because when we read the Bible, we see that grief isn't just inevitable. It's absolutely necessary to grow into the people God has called us to be. Now, to give some context into the passage we're looking at today, it's a familiar passage uh, in John chapter 11. Uh, Jesus has just gotten word that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, is sick and on his deathbed. Uh, if you don't know, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, who are also two of Jesus' closest friends, who spent a lot of time with him during the course of his ministry. Now, Jesus, upon hearing the news that his friend is sick, interestingly, doesn't just drop everything he's doing and go to him. He delays. He takes his time. And by the time he arrives on the scene, it's too late. Lazarus has been dead for four days. His sisters are utterly distraught. And the first thing out of both Mary and Martha's mouth is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? What took you so long? Why didn't you get here sooner? You're the reason my brother is dead. 
And in verse 32, it says, Mary throws herself at Jesus' feet, and she's just weeping. Now, I want to pause here and hone in on Jesus' response. For those of you who know this story, you know that in about five verses, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There is never a moment that Jesus is not in complete control of the situation. And so if you're Jesus and you have Mary and Martha bawling at your feet, blaming you for the death of their brother, you would think Jesus would use that opportunity to put everyone in their place. You would think he would say something like, everyone just needs to calm down, everyone needs to get a grip, because I'm about to fix this right now. But no, that's not what he does at all. You know what Jesus does? It's right there in verse 35. It's the shortest, but perhaps most profound verse in the entire New Testament. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I want you to think about the magnitude of that statement. The eternal Son of God, the one who existed at the very beginning, who had no deficiency or imperfection whatsoever, wept. He didn't just cry, he bawled. The connotation there in the Greek is that he was convulsing, he was inconsolable, and he weeps like this knowing that in just a few short moments he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I think we see two things here. Number one, faith doesn't make loss hurt any less. I don't care if you are a pastor and you've read the Bible cover to cover a hundred times, there is no amount of faith that will make losing a child easy. There is no amount of faith that will make healing from sexual abuse easy. Knowing there's hope doesn't make something any less heartbreaking. And this is where we Christians fail all the time. We throw out cliches like, you know what, God has a plan for everything. Don't worry, God works all things for our good. Or even worse, we start ranking people's losses and comparing our losses to theirs. Oh man, that really sucks what you're going through, but at least you still have a job. At least you're still married. At least your disease isn't terminal. But you see, this is lazy Christianity. This is us trying to minimize pain. It's something Jesus never does. I mean, nobody in the history of the world suffered more than he did, and yet he never says, tell everyone to stop crying. It's not that big a deal. No. He understands the pain in that moment is absolutely real, and he weeps. Now, the second thing we see here is that God can handle our emotions. You know, you would think Jesus would be annoyed or at least defensive when Mary and Martha are going at him for not being there for their brother, when they're hurling accusations at him. Where were you when my brother was suffering? But verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who, were, uh, who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He didn't correct her. He didn't trivialize her pain. He was deeply moved by her honesty. The first step toward embracing grief and loss is to be brutally honest with God because he can take it. Where were you, God, when my company tanked? Where were you, God, when my dreams died? Where were you, God, during my divorce? And it's going to be hard to admit certain things, especially the small things. God, I thought I was okay with that relationship not working out, but you know what? I'm not okay. God, I really thought I could handle this working from home thing with kids, but I'm not okay. 
And we hate admitting that these things affect us because they seem so small, but it's because we're not honest with ourselves. And you know how I know we struggle with this? Almost all the prayer requests I get in my inbox are about the big things. Death in the family, bankruptcy, marital strife, as though these are the only things worthy of a person's grief. Very rarely do I get emails asking for prayer about the small things because it's almost easier for us to say, you know what, it's not a big deal. It's really not worth praying for. It's fine. Life goes on. But what I love about the Bible is that it gives us words to express all our grief honestly. Nearly a third of the Psalms are songs of lament. Songs that express frustration and anger and despair, often toward God himself. And you know what the crazy thing is? God, who is holy and all-knowing and perfect, not only gives his people permission to feel and express their angst, but he ordains it as a part of worship. Okay, so the first step to embracing grief and loss is grieving honestly. The second step is grieving patiently. You know, it's very interesting that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew how the story would turn out, and yet he lets them grieve for four days. Almost feels like a sick joke. And yet in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Because he loved them, he stayed where he was for two more days. Because he loved them, he made them wait. Because he loved them, he let them grieve longer. It's as though Jesus is saying, grieving takes time. It's not something you check off the to-do list. It's a process that can take months, years, or an entire lifetime. And if your grief doesn't seem to subside, if you've been in therapy for years and it feels like you're moving at a snail's pace, it's not that God doesn't care. John chapter 11 shows us it's actually because God loves us that he allows us to sit in grief, to sit in discomfort, to sit in uncertainty. But you see, this runs so contrary to how our culture operates. Like we don't know how to grieve patiently because we're constantly bombarded with information. Like this is what we do. We read a headline that grabs our attention. We say, oh my goodness, this is horrible. I can't believe this happened again. We tweet it out. We send that link to our friends. We say, look at this. And then immediately we move on to a cute picture of a dog, a picture of what our friends had for dinner. And you see, this is training us to grieve quickly or simply to not grieve at all. You know, there's been a lot of talk these days about listening and learning. And personally, I don't think there's enough talk about lamenting. We always just want to skip the grief part. And I'm not talking about committing our thoughts and prayers on social media. I'm talking about actually mourning what is happening in the world right now. You know, when I first watched the videos of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Elijah McClain, my immediate thought as a pastor was, Okay, what are we going to do? I got to call a leadership meeting. How are we going to respond? Is the church going to put out a statement? And somewhere in the clamor of trying to do the right thing, I forgot to grieve. And you see, this is exactly why we need to grieve. So that we're stripped of any sense of self-sufficiency, of the belief that we can fix ourselves. 
Jesus allows us to wait in grief in order to show us the futility of our own effort and to teach us how to live in brokenness and vulnerability. And I'm telling you, the longer you learn how to wait in grief, the more you will begin to see startling shifts in yourself. You will see your heart for the hurting begin to grow. You will find yourself drawn to the wounded and the broken. You will start to become more comfortable not having all the answers. You will start to see yourself becoming the person Jesus has called you to be. And in those moments, we will realize that our grief, as painful as it may feel, has a purpose. We will begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are those who mourn. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, written shortly after his wife's tragic death, says this, Nothing will shake a man, or at any rate a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself. Okay, so one, we grieve honestly, Two, we grieve patiently. And finally, we grieve hopefully. And we see this in Martha. You know, right after she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In the very next verse, she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. You know, I said earlier that faith doesn't make loss hurt any less. In other words, faith doesn't keep us from having to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. But at the same time, faith also reminds us that we aren't alone in the valley of the shadow of death. What I love about the picture here in John 11 is that it reminds us that Jesus is a God uh, who meets us in our place of greatest pain. He enters into our grief and he just stays there. And not only does he weep for us, he weeps with us. You see, you can only grieve hopefully when you know that that other person who's grieving with you has gone through everything you've gone through. Like, you know how much power there is in the phrase, me too? You know, before that phrase became a viral hashtag, I remember reading post after post by my female friends who began to share their stories of sexual trauma and abuse for the first time. And that simple phrase, me too, had such power because it allowed people to stand courageously in their grief, knowing that this was going to be uncomfortable, knowing this was going to be scary, but knowing they weren't alone. When Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, this is the God of the universe saying, me too. I want you to let that sink in. You see, Jesus experienced every kind of grief imaginable. Jesus experienced abandonment, betrayal, loss, humiliation, and perhaps worst of all, separation from the Father himself. And on the cross, his final words were not words of celebration or victory, they were words of lament. He shouts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the collective pain and brokenness of the world is wrapped up in that one gut-wrenching soul cry, and yet the moment of Jesus' deepest grief was the moment of our greatest hope. You see, the cross was God's guarantee that death, as painful and devastating as it is, would no longer have the final word over our lives. And what this means is that we can now see every loss we experience in life not as an interruption, but as an invitation 
to grow deeper in intimacy with Jesus. The one who Revelation 21 says will one day return and wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, I was reading a blog this past week of a mom who lost her nine-year-old daughter to leukemia. And she wrote a post on the eve of what would have been her daughter's 12th birthday. And she opens the post with the words, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel. And she talks about how she's been doing everything possible to ignore and disregard her grief rather than deal with it. She talks about how she's been trying to stay busy, trying to stay productive, focused on her new job. I think all of us can relate to this. But on this particular day, she realizes that God wants her to sit with her grief. And this is what she writes. My grief articulates itself with a thousand questions of what could have been. What would 12 look like on our little girl? Would the chemo curls have grown out from a wild tangle to soft waves? Would her smile look different with a shiny set of braces? Would she take this COVID chaos and stride still fresh from her own practice of isolation after transplant? Would she be asking me about periods and boys and shaving her legs? Would she be excited to start junior high alongside me as I step back into the classroom? Would she be proud of me for pursuing my dream of teaching junior high English? Would I beam at her writing and marvel at the words she manipulates into masterpiece after masterpiece? Would we still stay up late to stare at the stars? Still make s'mores while the sun sets? Still ride bikes after dark? Still read books side by side? Still find new jokes to tell? Would I force her to sleep on the eve of her birthday as she bounces with excitement at what tomorrow holds? I feel it all tonight. The pain I pushed away, the pain I buried deep, the pain I bid goodbye is back. But maybe this is good, because feeling my heart break reminds me that it's still beating. And if it's still beating, I must be alive. And if I'm alive, there must be a purpose. And if there's a purpose, I can find the strength to wake up. And if I can wake up, then perhaps brighter days are within reach. Friends, in the gospel, all of us are able to hold the weight of heartache without fear that it will ever crush us. In the gospel, we will begin to see that uncomfortable space between what is and what could have been a sacred space. In the gospel, we learn how to embrace grief and loss with open arms, knowing that whatever it is we're grieving today, big or small, Jesus is there and he grieves with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are heavy because it feels like there's so much to grieve in the world around us. Some of us tuning in today have experienced unimaginable loss in this season and many of us are carrying pain we didn't even know we were carrying. But this morning we're reminded of your promise in Psalm 34, that you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. So give us the courage to sit with our grief, to be honest with you and ourselves, to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. We thank you that because of Christ's work on the cross, we are never alone in our pain and sorrow. May we be a church that mourns with those who mourn, a church marked by your love, mercy, and grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Let's respond to this word with a song of praise.